0: If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew, the 27th chapter, verse 65 and 66. We're going to start a series this morning on the napkin and around the tomb. Four things that were around the tomb that if it was not for those four things, the rest of the gospel would mean nothing. If it wasn't for these four things being around the tomb, then the hope that we have would be useless. And because of these four things, they confirm everything that Christ did while he was on earth. And it also affirms everything the prophets gave us to live our lives by and to follow through. And today we're going to look at the seal and the stone. Now, just to give you a little bit of background here before we read this Christ and his disciples had returned to Jerusalem they had had the Passover meal they had celebrated the very first Lord's Supper and he announced that he was going to be betrayed by one of the group and in that same setting he told Peter you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows in the morning Then they left the upper room, and Judas had already left and went to tell the ones that had bought the information from him where he was going to be at. And they went to their favorite place. They went to a garden. And in that garden, they would fellowship, and they would pray, and Jesus would teach, and he would would educate them about what was to come. And during that time in the garden, that's when the soldiers came and they took Christ prisoner. And they took him out and they carried him to every Roman official they could and said, look, this guy, is, he, he needs to die. Well, what's he done? He ain't done nothing, but he needs to die. And they, Well, I'm not going to do anything. So they sent him to the next one. Well, this guy needs to die. Well, how come? He just needs to die. What do he do? He ain't done nothing. Take him to somebody else. Even Pilate's wife said, leave him alone. Don't touch him. But Pilot's was the last line he knew he had to be the one to make the verdict. Now, how many of you have been in a position in work where you've had to be the one to make the final verdict even though you did not want to do it? I have. I had a group of men that worked for me with me in Alabama. They had been at a at a hatchery, well not a hatchery, but an egg processing facility. That the company closed. And so when they closed that, all those people were placed in other jobs in the company. Some of those men had been working with me for about a year when the company made the decision they were going to shut a shift off. And so I said, okay, we'll schedule a meeting and y'all can come in and tell them what time, you know, what day will be the last day and all this. And they said, no. That's your job. So here were these men that I knew I had grown up with their children and their grandchildren. My father had known them, and and I knew their wives. I had eaten dinner and supper in their homes, and I had to walk in and tell them, after next week, you don't have a job. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not an easy thing. So what did Pilate do? Pilate said, okay. If y'all want him dead, this is what we're going to do. We're going to bring out a criminal, and we're going to bring out Christ. And you will decide which one stays and goes, which was customary for the Passover, that they would release a prisoner to go free. Well, most of the time, it was somebody who hadn't done a whole lot, hadn't done much. But they brought out this prisoner, and then they brought out Christ. And as soon as Christ hit the stage, all those that were sitting out there were yelling crucify him, crucify him and they said well what about this man, let him go, but he's the one that's guilty, let him go Christ didn't utter a word so they take Christ and they take him and they give him to the Roman soldiers and they scourge him now scourging was used with a cat of nine tails it was a whip it had nine prongs coming off of it. There was one that was just solid leather. One that would be loaded with lead shot and sewn together. One that would have a clay pot broken and inserted into the leather so it would grab as it would come out. There was another one that was laden with, with little light razor blade type instruments on it. One had rocks in it and tied to the outside of it. One was just whatever they could find. One had thorns all statured out through it, just just shoved through. Then they had another one that would be probably like a, I don't know if any of y'all were this mean when you were growing up, but have you ever been whipped with a weeping willow branch? One of those prongs probably had a lot of those tied to it. And then the last one, which would be the last one that would, would hit the body, would be the one that had a weight tied to the end of it to force it in deeper than the rest. And every time that that cat of nine tails would come down across the back, it would bruise, it would tear, it would rip and shred Everything on Christ's back. And as it did this, they, the scourging could go 40 lashes because they figured at 41, a person would die. So they would go 40 lashes. But to make sure that they had enough body to nail to the cross, they had a soldier that would count and only 39 lashes could be given because they wanted to make sure they could hang that body up as a spectacle to the world. Now all this had happened to Christ. They took the crown of thorns, two to three inch thistle thorns, and they wove them together and they placed them on his head and they took a rod and they beat it down so it penetrated into the skin. So now not only is his back exposed and the medical doctors will tell you that through this scourging that you could literally watch his heart beat and his lungs inflate and deflate from behind. Now he's got this crown of thorns that's been driven in and, and now there's blood running through his face. And they take over and they put a purple robe around him. Purple was the color of, of majesty. So they took a purple robe and they laid it over on top of him. And this robe was sucked into the blood. And then they laid that cross on his back and they made him carry it up the hill to Golgotha. And what did we learn Wednesday night? Where was that hill? The same place that Abraham was sent to sacrifice Isaac. The same hill. And a ram was found in the thistles, to take his place. There was the lamb, our replacement for our punishment, going up that hill. And as they got him up to the top of the hill, they would take and they would, they would lay that down and they would lay the person on top. But with Jesus, since he had this, this purple robe on, they literally took that robe that had now dried to the body and then he just ripped it off. And then they laid him down. And they began to put nails in his hands and his feet. They put the nails not in the hands like we see the pictures. No, that doesn't hurt. And I mean, that sounds funny, but that really doesn't hurt. Because there's not really a whole lot there. And it'll drive through, it'll deflect off the bone, and it'll go through and find a spot where there's nothing in its way. So if they put them through the hands when they put them up on the cross and the weight of their own body started sagging down, that nail would literally pull out from between their fingers and their arms would drop. And that wouldn't be cruel enough and that wouldn't cause enough pain. So they took the nail and they put it here at the base of the hand into the wrist. Take your finger and put it right here and feel those two bones? They drove those nails right there. So when the body started to slide, it was held in place. And then they turned the, the, to the ankles to the side and they drove them in. And my wife loves this part. You know those knobs right there on top of your foot, you know that out on each side? I call them knobs and she just drives her up a wall. But they would drive those nails through. Then they would turn that over. With them nailed to it, they would flip them over face down and then they would drive the nails to one side or the other so they would make sure they were hooked into the wood and they would not pull out. Then the body would hang up on the cross for hours sometimes before they would die. The Roman soldiers usually carried what looked like a big sledgehammer or a big big painful tool with them besides the hammer they used to drive the nails with. And at dusk, if the person was still alive, they would break their shins so that it would pull down and their lungs would feel completely full of fluid and they would drown. But Christ had already given up the ghost. So the scriptures that Isaiah and the other prophets had given us, that not a bone would be broken, came true. The Roman soldier took and he pierced his side just to see if he was alive or not. He pierced his side and the blood in the water flew flew out, flown out down to the ground. And then they declared that this person was dead. So they had taken Christ down and now it is almost sunset on Friday, and they've taken him down, and they've wrapped him up in some grave clothes, and they've taken him to a brand new tomb, and they've laid the body in this tomb. And here's where our scripture picks up. The Jewish officials, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those that had been driven out of the temple that day, when Christ went in and said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves, instead of a house of prayer, those people were the ones that were standing out in the crowd yelling, crucify! Crucify! Well, now they were worried because in John chapter 2, verse 19, Christ said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up. So in Matthew, The 27th chapter of 65 and 66, the Sadducees and Pharisees went to Pilate and they said, if you do not, if you do not guarantee somehow, some way, that his body will stay in there because what's going to happen is his disciples and his followers, they're going to come in and they're going to steal that body and it's going to look just like he actually rose from the dead. And that is the background for our story this morning, for our, for our talk that we're going to look at at the tomb. So Pilate sent his men out, and he said, Okay, I'm going to give you a guard of soldiers. That's what Pilate told him. I'm going to give you a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and secured the tomb by sealing it with a seal on the stone and placing the guard. Now, let's talk about the seal for just a minute. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about Daniel and how when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den and they put the stone in front and the king come up and said, okay, we got to make sure he doesn't get out. So they, they sealed the tomb and he called not only himself but his other noblemen to come up and put their insignia in the seal to prove that it hadn't been broken. Well, that seal that they used was either mud, clay, or wax, and they would melt it or form it and put it up on the seal, and then they would usually take, if it was a small thing like a letter or a scroll, they would take their ring and they would press it into it, and then they would pull it out. And their crest, their seal, their identifying mark would be in that seal. On a tomb such as this, they might have taken the wax or the mud and put it out there and had a large wooden pole with the same insignia and they would implant it into that and then pull it back out. And as it dried and hardened, it was there. And if anybody received that 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 scroll or that letter or anything that the person had sent them and it was broken, they would know somebody else had been into it and it saw it. Now we do that today with our postage. We all got that seal. Now now when I was growing up, you had to take that envelope and you had to go and you had that glue taste in your mouth for hours. And then you'd take that stamp and you, and you oh it's crooked. You know, and then you straighten But that's how we seal things. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I want you to be honest with me. How many of you have ever removed the tag from a mattress or pillow? What's that thing say? Do not remove. But we'll tear that thing off because why? I don't want to roll over in the middle of the night and that tag just <coughs> hitting me in the face. I don't want to stretch my foot out and run across the bottom of the mattress and it get hung between my toes. It ain't fun. But what happens today in our society, in our world is, is we will take somebody's past life and we will seal them in in their past so hard and so deep that we don't want them to get out. We look at their past and we say, you know what, you know, you used to be this way. We've got people that are willing to serve and willing to be used and would love to be a part of a church family, but we'll seal them in because of something, some small mistake that somebody made in their past, and we can't get over it. We can't. But God can. You see, when man put that seal on that tomb that day, And they said, okay, nobody can break this seal. It's here for a reason. We know that that seal means that only the person that put it on, so only Pilate or one of his designated noblemen could have the authority to go out and break that seal. How many of you have been sealed up today in your past? How many of you have been sealed up for something that you've done in your youth or your childhood? How many of you have been sealed up to the point that people will give you that despairing look as you walk by? They'll make the snide comments or remarks as they see you walk through. I brought up the point Wednesday night about our son Brandon. You know, we were married in February. Brandon was born. At, we were married the first of February. Brandon was born at the end of December. And I mean literally we had good Southern Baptists going. Two, three, Counting all in front of us. And they, boy that squeaked in. And, and I have seen people who have come to the altar and they've knelt down and they've prayed and they've accepted Christ into their heart. The saddest story I ever heard was a former pastor saying that a young man had come to the altar and he got down to the altar and he started praying and nobody was there with him. And he was running the revival, so he got up and he went over and he sat and knelt down beside the young man and he asked him what he needed. And the young man said, I, I, I don't know Christ, I want to know Him. So the pastor led him in the sinner's prayer and after he told him the story of Jesus and the young man accepted Christ and as he got up, nobody else moved. He went over and got the pastor's hand and said, this young man has accepted Christ. And he said, "Uh uh-huh, we understand. And he said, well, we need to tell him. And he said, well, Sunday when he comes back and he's shaved and he's got his hair cut and he's got better clothes on, we'll let him announce that. They sealed him up in his past because of the way that he looked. Can you imagine if John the Baptist walked through that back door right now and camel hair, long hair, hadn't had a bath in two or three days other than stepping out in the river. And that wasn't a clean river either. It wasn't a smelling good river. And he walked through that door right now and started tapping you on the shoulder telling you somebody was coming greater than him. Would you sell him in this morning? How many people do we know that could be serving God and being used by God that have had a past that had an addiction in it? And how many people do we know that could be serving God and loving on people and being useful in the church, but they've got a divorce in their past? Well, I'm going to tell you what God thought about it. Because you see the first Easter morning when Mary and Martha and them came to the tomb and there it was, it was standing wide open. God had shattered that seal that man had put on it. God said, I don't care what that seal says you are. I don't care where that seal says you've been and I don't care what that seal says you have in your past. You're now mine. There is not anything in this world that man can put a seal on that God cannot break. There is nothing in this world that God can look down on and see it and not forgive it because His Son died on a cross. His Son died that that seal could be broken. And our homes and our hearts and our families and our churches could be unbarred and do what His plan says do. Anybody that will tell you, well, I know what you've done. And I know where you've been. You need to look them straight in the eye and and say, thank God because I'm never going back there again. Once that seal was broken, God said that seal that man placed on your life that held you captive, that held you in bondage, that held you in troubles and trials and tribulations is now over. It's gone. But guess what? we as the church and we as a society and everything else said, okay, they broke the seal, but let's put a stone in front of the door. Let's make every hindrance we can to keep that person away. I was kidding Ethel this morning as I walked through and and, and I was talking to her as we were coming up this way and I said, I remember the first time that I ever stood up and gave a sermon and my mother in the audience that I didn't have a tie on. She was so embarrassed. Thought, you can't preach without a tie. We had a church that we were attending and, and the youth minister was filling in as the pastor had retired after 30 years, something like that. And I was sitting in the choir and we were sitting up there and we were looking out and the youth minister come walking down the center aisle and the two people in front of me go, look at that. He ain't got no tie on. He ain't even got a suit jacket on. What's he trying to represent? And I leaned down between the two of them and I said, I know. Let's go fire every missionary we've got in every field in the world because they don't have on a suit and tie this morning. I'm going to tell you something. If God can take John the Baptist in camel hair and smelling like he did and use him to proclaim his word, he can use an old country bald-headed redneck boy from Alabama to tell you that God loves you. We'll put that stone up there and we'll say, you know what? We've got some legalities we've got to go through before we can use you in the church. We've got some legalities that you've got to climb over and, and around and you've got to jump this hoop and make sure that you fit in our mold. Wow, we've got an image we want to portray. I I don't know what image it is. Next Sunday we're going to talk about the grave clothes and, and there's a, a part of the, of the talk that we'll do next Sunday that that breaks down that image entirely. But as we sit and we look, we'll put stuff out there and we'll say, you know what? We know God can save. We know God can heal. We know God can do this. But if you've done it in your past, you can't be a part of us. We'll look out there and we'll see that stone that's sitting there. And we'll say, that's ours. And what we don't want people climbing over that stone is we don't want anybody going over here that might have a little bit different of an idea, that might have a different story than we've got. But that stone not only was meant to keep people from coming in, but it was meant to keep anything from going out. How many rules and regulations have we placed on the church that doesn't allow us to go out? How many have we allowed to be put in place that says we can't go out? When I was a young man growing up, we had teachers that I guess didn't get the memo from somewhere because we still prayed in school. We said Pledge of Allegiance in school. We prayed in every dressing room, every locker room that I've ever played any type of ball in. And generally, we prayed at the end of it after it was through. And now they say, you can't do that anymore. I've seen churches that have come out and they've said, okay, we're going to allow the youth to go this far, but no further. I can remember the first time that I ever heard a contemporary Christian song, and, and I was told that's how the devil's going to get the kids out of church. No, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Katie and I went to a concert down in Boaz, Alabama at the Batwell, not Boutwell, the Bevel Center at Snead State Community College, and the headlining group that night was a little group called Need to Breathe. And they got up there, three young brothers, their father, pastor of a Baptist church, a Baptist church, pastor of a Baptist church. And they got up there, and they had drums, and they had electric keyboards, and they had guitars, and and they had skinny jeans. I don't know why you would wear skinny jeans, but they had them on. And they got up there and they started singing. And you could tell they wanted people to come down front. They wanted the youth to come into the, what they call it, the mosh pit? You know, right here in the front where they could get down there and hop around and praise God. And these Baptist kids that we were they're sitting in there with were scared to death. If I get up and I go down there, well, they'll think I'm dancing. If I get up and go down there and I raise my hand, they're going to think I'm Pentecostal. If I get up and go down there, they're going to think I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. No. The following Monday, no, Sunday morning, that was Saturday night, the following Sunday morning, the youth minister that the association said schedule it and set it up, walked in the back door of the church to come in that morning with his family, was met by the chairman of the deacon board and the pastor, and they said, you're fired. And Monday morning they called and canceled every other concert that they had scheduled because they were not going to allow that to go on in their county. My daughter brought in a thing one day and she said, Dad, I want you to read this. Our daughter, or son, won. And then I, I sat down and I read this and I said, okay, that sounds pretty good. A little poem, it was nice. And then I heard the song. And before I could say anything, they said, no, you've already said it's okay. And they, when they pushed play, it was D.C. Talks, Jesus Freak. My daughter, when we were going up one day to chaperone one of the kids, I stopped and I bought a Nicole C. Mullins tape. Y'all remember the tapes, you know, the little, not the little CD, but the actual tape. And I put it in and it started playing and it was My Redeemer Lives. And our daughter, sitting in the back seat, said, you know the favorite line in this whole song? out of every promise that there was in it that our Savior was alive, out of everything that there was that there could be, all the things that she wrote in that song, her favorite line was, I know He lives because I talked with Him this morning. How many times have we sealed in our youth kept them from talking to God because we've told them, oh, that's not the right way to do it. I've had young people that would sit in front of me and hold their hands and they would look up and they would say, oh, Papa, I love you so much for your son's saving grace. Not Father. And I've had people say they don't need to call and be disrespectful. They're not. They're talking to God like we ought to talk to God. Open and honest with no barriers, no seals, nothing rolled in front of us. It's just wide open for us to go and enter into the throne room of God. I've seen families that have been torn apart because that stone was placed there. You can't serve us in our church because your wife did things that's not right. Don't care that she says she was saved over there. we got a stone right here that says we can't have that. Or we would let you serve and we'd let you be used, but there's stories about your son. There's a rumor that he's been arrested. There's tales that are going out that that says he's not a good kid. And we know that you could be a help to this church, but we can't let, allow that because we'd have to move that stone. And that stone's heavy and it's full of tradition. It is full of, of old additives and everything that we don't want. You know, we could go out and, and we could share and we could witness in that, in that government housing facility or we could go down the road here just a little bit and find those homes that people are living in that don 't have never heard about God, but no we can't know we we can't be in the world we can be around, but we can't be out there in it, so we 've got to keep that stone right here, so only we can come in, only we will have the pleasure. My grandmother used to claim that she was part of a denomination that there was only going to be a set amount of people going to heaven. Every time you talk, oh, I can't do that. I, I belong to this religious group over here. And this is, I can't, you know, whatever. The, the day she was in the hospital and they said, if you don't get this blood transfusion, you're going to die. Now, the next person came in was a social worker. And they said, what is your religious affiliation? She said, I'm Baptist. She could accept it if she was Baptist. This morning, I want to ask you a question. What is your religious affiliation? Is it a Baptist or are you a Christian? Which comes first? Now, I was born Baptist. I was raised Baptist. I believe the Baptist. I still say that every time two or more Baptists get together, a chicken's got to die and some taters got to get cooked and we'll have a good time. But I'm going to tell you most of all that after a Wednesday night laying in an old worn out bed that was too short for me to begin with and I was laying there and I was remembering back with the preacher that night talking about that still small voice that came to him. That still small voice. After the earthquake, after the storms, after everything that came, that still small voice that came and said, Here I am. That voice came into that bedroom I was in and it said, I'm here. And I said, Good, because I want you. And I laid there in that bed and I asked God to forgive me for my sins. And then He forgave me right there. And then the next night, I took the next step because He says, If you're afraid to confess me before men, I'll be ashamed to confess you before the Father. And so that night, as two young boys came down to the altar to say they had accepted Christ, I was standing at the back door of the church. And I thought if I got far enough back, I wouldn't have to go. But I was standing at the back door, and as soon as I took one step, I was standing at the altar with my arms around my father. And I told him what happened. And I have had stone after stone after stone try to be placed in front of me. One of the key things was when I was younger and, and I would go out and I would, I would find some of the older men and I'd say, uh, what does this mean? And I would get, well, if you don't know what that means, God didn't save you. If you don't know what this means, well, that, that, God didn't call you to preach if you don't know what that means. And you know what? When I got older, I figured out what that meant. They didn't have a clue. They didn't want to answer it because they didn't know how to answer it. That they would place that stone. If you have ever stumbled in your life, God didn't really save your soul. But He broke that seal. One of these days, we're going to do a sermon on grace for the habitual offender I don't know about y'all but I'm habitual it flows and I'm going to be honest with you it's hard it's not easy but I can't find anywhere anywhere in here that said that you're not going to have a rocky path from time to time And I can't find in here where it says, once you say, I'm I'm yours and I accept you. I can't find one place in here that it says you'll never stumble and fall. Matter of fact, I can find more places in this book, Matthew alone, of people who stumbled and fell that went on to be mighty men of God and mighty women of God that stumbled and fell. But because on the day, the first Easter morning, because He took that seal and He shattered it, and He rolled that stone out of the way, it doesn't matter. Now I'm not telling you to go out here and do whatever you want, when you want, and how you want. There's a lot of good Baptists that have thought that's the way that life is. But it's not. But I will tell you, God broke that seal for you and you and me. That we have a way to Him directly. We talked about the tearing down of the curtain a few weeks ago and how it opened up the doorway for us to go directly to Him. Well, you know what? He done the same thing Easter Sunday morning when He rolled that seal out of the way. He gave us a direct shot to Him. He didn't bind us up. And He didn't keep us hid. And He didn't tell us, you've got to follow men's rules. He said, you've got to follow my rules. We'll complicate it. We'll stretch it out. We'll string it out. We'll do everything under our power to make it as hard as we can. This morning as our singers get ready to come up, one Thursday night I came back in and we met my cousin and went and done a youth group meeting down by the side of the lake. And as we came back in, that we were met at the door and they were... What are we gonna do? The pastor's not here. And there's children wanting to know about God, wanting to be saved. And I walked down the hall and I opened the door up to the eight and ten year olds. And the little girl that was one of our girls was about eight or nine years old, had a whiteboard up there. And she had drawn on that white board. She had drawn this little picture, and it was like a fire pit. She had a cross in the middle and then she had some clouds. And she said, this is hell and this is heaven. Christ died on a cross. If you'll accept Him as your Lord and Savior, you're going to heaven. If you don't, you're going to die and go to hell. I closed the door. And they were like, what are you doing? They need you. No, they don't. She told them the gospel. We'll stretch it out. to, Oh, you've got to fill out this. we've got to take you over to a room and we've got to talk to you about this God broke every seal and every stone that morning on the first Easter morning this morning I wonder is there somebody here today that your life is sealed up that you are so sealed up that you can't feel the love and joy of God anymore in your heart and in your life Has there been a stone or a boulder or something placed in front of you that's keeping you from going in and receiving that? This morning these altars are open and and the pews are open. And if nobody else will come pray with you, I will. But God loves you enough that He broke every barrier and every seal down to get to you. Father, we just ask this morning, Lord, that, Father, that if someone has been sealed in, Father, someone's been locked out, pushed away, turned away, rejected, Lord, Father, we just pray and ask it right now. This is the hour, Lord, that they would come and accept you. Father, let that seal be broken in their heart and in their life. Father, let them know that you can use them no matter what the world says. And Father, we just thank you so much for your loving grace and mercy that you provided a way for us every step of the way we go. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.